the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good afternoon to you. It's uh, another Saturday on Woods and Water, South Carolina. Thanks for tuning in. I'm flying solo today for this segment. Taylor's uh, got some of those high school things going on and gave her the day off so she could get keep that schoolwork going. That's more important than uh, than being here, although I miss her when she's not here. But I hope you're uh, having a great Saturday. It's uh, it's going to be a busy one here on the show. We're going to talk uh, a lot about fire and wild turkeys with David Strickland, uh, a guy I met a few years back and uh, got to know just a wealth of knowledge, uh, has an opinion about things. And uh, has a lot of experience to back it up, and I hope you'll enjoy it. So we're gonna we're gonna spend most of the show with him. Uh, this first segment we've got a few things on the calendar of events, and uh, I don't know what do you want a local fishing report. Hartwell's on fire, a lot of fish on the beds. Caught a caught one uh, right at six pounds the other day. So uh, you know I I go back and forth, and and some of the professional fishermen I talk about talk about targeting fish on the bed. Does it is it harmful? Is it, um, you know, is it is it detrimental? Is it or is it just fun? You know, I don't know. I mean, those fish. I think those fish bed no matter what. I mean, they'll they'll bite another day. In fact, I caught the same male twice in 15 minutes on a bed the other day. But anyway, the fish on the bed. There are other fish out there uh, under docks and all. Caught a few of those. That's when you need to practice those skipping skills. Uh, jigs are not it right now. Wacky worms. Shake your heads. If you can skip a chatterbait, caught some fish on chatterbait the other day too. So it's wide open. It's just a fun time to be out there. Going to be uh, today, I'm down on Clarks Hill. The South Carolina Department of Natural Resources is having their state um, high school, middle school bass fishing championship. So I'm going to run down there and shoot some pictures for them on the water. And I talked to a buddy of mine down there, Will Hardy from Greenfish Tackle. They make the jigs that I use and the shaky heads that I use, and they make some awfully fine um, balsa crankbaits, too. I haven't, haven't been able to bite those off yet. But anyway, um, Will said that the, the herring bite is going off on Clarks Hill, which means Hartwell won't be too far behind, and Murray could possibly already be there. I don't know. It's, it's yeah, it's that time of the year. So, you know, next weekend, the Tackle Pro Warehouse um, Tour, Major League Fishing, what used to be the FLW Tour, is on Murray next Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'll, Taylor and I will be down there for those days, or parts of those days. going to stay down at Drew Island. Um, buddy Ellie Young got me, uh, fixed me up. But, uh, yeah, so fishing is, is off the charts. Turkey hunting, hadn't been in the woods yet. Got a couple of weeks to try to make it happen, but goodness, I just don't see the, I just don't see the stars aligning for me enough to, with what I've got to do. Just don't see it happening. 
sure wish it would, though. Uh, now is the time when you're starting to see all these little buzzy things around. And I, I pulled up this little sheet, little cheat sheet, a comprehensive guide to yellow stripy things. <laughs> Carpenter bees. Oh, gosh, we got these at the farm. They bore into everything. Um, that's okay. Uh, Carpenter bee. Acts like it's tough but can't actually hurt you. Has no concept of what glass is. It lives in your fence and flies aggressively to try to scare you away. It does. It looks like a bumblebee. Honeybee is the bee that needs help the most. Excellent pollinator. Very friendly. Can only sting once. Bumblebees also pollinate stuff very well. So fat it shouldn't be able to fly. We'll let you pet it without actually getting agitated. And it's actually looks like a flying panda bear. Except it's yellow and black instead of white and black. Hoverfly. Wears yellow stripy uniform to scare you. Actually can't do anything to you. Hangs out in fields. Follows you if it likes you. Isn't that nice? Paper wasp. Looks scary, but only attack if provoked. Sting hurts like the devil. Will chase you if you swat at it. Has no concept of personal space. Yellow jacket. Wants your food and will fight you for it. Including, oh, the worst one. Got inside a Coke can on me once. Let's don't talk about that. Uh, never leaves you alone. Will sting you just for the heck of it. Is just a jerk. Cicada killer. They say we're going to have a huge cicada hatch this year. I've been seeing stories of like, what, 14 million cicadas or something? Ah, some ungodly number like that across the southeast. But the, the trout fishing ought to, and the fishing ought to be off the charts if that happens too. Uh, cicadas, fish love them. Uh, cicada killer looks like Satan's nightmares. Exclusively eats cicadas. Can't sting you, but usually won't. Can sting you, but usually won't. Still pretty terrifying. And then the old dirt dauber. Always never, almost never stings anything except spiders. Builds nests in the ground. Hoards spiders in said nest. Coolest looking of the wasps. And you can only tell a dirt dauber because his wings flutter. They just got this nervous flutter to him while he's walking around. But yeah, they have, they make those, those look like, uh, uh mud cocoons. That's your dirt daubers. So there, you pull it up. A comprehensive guide to yellow stripey things. And I've seen one that's kind of even more humorous than this one or funny than this one. I didn't bother to do that one today. Got a calendar of events brought to you as always by Visit Anderson Green Pond Landing and Event Center. Uh, the 2021 Omar Hillbillies Outhouse One Barbecue Cookoff, April 23rd and 24th uh, in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, the recreational park. Anything but Friday night with the people judging. That means but. You can't cook butts on Friday night. It's wings or something else. And then Boston Butts, Ribs and Chicken on Saturday. Categories judged by the SBM with over $4,500 in payouts. So anyway, go Friday night and get some good stuff. And I think probably you can go on Saturday and buy some tickets and eat some good food too. And it, it, look, and always check on this stuff too before you go. Check just to make sure it hasn't been canceled because sometimes it does get canceled after I say it and it doesn't happen. The Lowry Clarendon Heating and Air presents the Open Team Bass Fishing Tournament on Santee Cooper Lakes, Saturday and Sunday, April 24th, 25th, out of John C. Land. The entry fees, it uh, looks like 300 bucks, but it's paying out like 15 grand for first place. Yeah, that's pretty good, and it pays out all the way down to 10th at 1,000. Um, uh, go to Larendon, Lowry. L-O-W-E-R-Y dash Clarendon Heating and Air website. Got all the information. They got a big fish pot and the payout for big fish each day. Oh, just large prize rival. This just looks like a good time. So check it out. Lowry 
Clarendon Heating and Air. Lake Hart will five alive Sunday Spring Series is 2021 team trail for Bassmaster. Uh, they are going to be April 25th at Green Pond Landing. And um, you fish to qualify for the Bassmaster Team Championship and earn a spot in the 2022 Bassmaster Classic, although you probably got to fish all of them to do that. But, hey, it could be a fun time for you and a buddy. South Carolina Ducks Unlimited is having some spring banquets. Again, check just to make sure before you go. Um, Kershaw County, April 30th. And, you know, raffles and all that. And, and let me tell you what, these non-governmental organizations like SEDU, DU, Delta, National Wild Turkey Federation, Quality Deer Association, all those, they have really suffered through all this stuff. So they need all the help they can, be as generous as you can, and, you know, you always take on some stuff. Lunch and Learn with South Carolina Bob White's, with South Carolina's Bob White Quail Experts. Panelist Michael Hook, he's been on here a bunch. TJ Severino, Brett Carmichael, Corey Heaton, and Andy Craig are going to be on May 4th, 2021 from 12 to 1 p.m. Join the Seaweed Longleaf Conservation Cooperative and a panel of South Carolina's Bob White Quail Experts to learn more about quail biology and management. Register in advance, and um, oh gosh, it's a Clemson program. So go to Clemson. Dot, let's see, registration link: Clemson. Zoom. Us backslash meeting backslash register. Yeah, yeah. I think you do better. Better googling or going to see we long live conservation cooperative and and uh, getting the information for there. So there's a few calendar events. Remember, the yellow stripey things are out and about. Some of them can sing you, some of them can't. I always stay away from all of them because just as soon as I do, one of them will sting me, and I hate to get stung. How many of you ever ever stepped on a yellow jacket nest with bare feet? Yeah, you know how that feels. All right, hang on. Got David Strickland, probably the rest of the show, talking about turkeys, fire, and uh, other good stuff. Hang on. You know, I love that song, and I'm sure my my guest for this show probably knows that song and loves it too, because it describes our upbringing, our Southern heritage, and and what we what we consider, you know, our lives. And that's uh, Sweet Southern Comfort, and and my guest is David Strickland. Uh, known David for a few years now. Uh, through a, actually, uh, I met another guy on Facebook, which is a scary thing. Uh, but, uh, through Carolina Wildlife Syndicate, and it's been a long time coming, David, but I'm, um, we finally made it happen, dude. Hey, thanks for having me, Roger. I greatly appreciate you, uh, reaching out to me, your friendship, and your conservation oriented mindset, and what you do on your radio talk show, man. It goes a long way. It's important that guys like us all, work towards the same cause, especially in today's times and events where, you know, we're losing landscape and suitable habitat and being attacked from all sides. So I greatly appreciate you having me, buddy. Absolutely. Well, take a, take a couple minutes, introduce yourself, kind of give your background because it's a, it's a, it's a, a widely varied background in the outdoors and, uh, and then take a few minutes and talk about it. And I've mentioned this several times on the show. Uh, Carolina Wildlife Syndicate Facebook group, 
uh, not your ordinary Facebook group. It's a very, wow, well, it'll make you think, <laughs> Facebook group. And, yeah. uh, and I enjoy, I don't post a lot on it, but I enjoy getting in there and reading it and, and getting other people's opinions. But so introduce yourself and talk about Carolina Wallace Syndicate for a few minutes. Yeah, will do. So, um, I was a, a fortunate young man to grow up, uh, in a outdoor family. My father studied forestry and wildlife management at Clemson University. That was back in the seventies, right when he had gotten out of the Navy. And, you know, unlike today's day and age, that was a different color of people. And actually, in that process, my mother was a full-time nurse there at the infirmary, Redfern. And so quite often, my dad would have to carry me to class to the, you know, humor of all of his other fellow students and professors, which literally just welcomed me right into the, uh, the crowd at the age of two, three, four years old. I probably knew then more than I do now about the Latin genus and species names. Uh, there was a Dr. Shane. A lot of people out there listening may have heard of Dr. Shane, and he's a big archery guy, but I could sit up on the table at the age of four years old and, you know, give the genus and species of just about every tree out there. So I started off that way, and then I think I went on my first turkey hunt at the age of five, and that was some 45 years ago. Um, and, you know, I've, I've lived all over the southeast. I've done some work in Southern Africa, Central America as well, and um, went on. And obviously, you know, my parental guidance led me into an arena of where I just cared more about the outdoors than anything else. So I got a degree in biology and then a minor in uh, environmental studies and then went on to become, during that period and a little bit afterwards, I was working for the U.S. Forest Service as a biotech and then, I can't remember all the G-level positions, but I think I was like a G5 biologist or something. I cannot really remember it. My brain doesn't hold those numbers very well. But my emphasis was during the Forest Service time was on prescribed firing, uh, the intensity of prescribed fire, and the resulting effects upon the regeneration of pine species and hardwood species. And that was all correlated to slope, time of year, um, and degree of intensity of burning, topsoil fermentation layers. And then I also went on to do a stint working on the red cockaded woodpecker down at the Savannah River site. From there, I took a, a job with uh, the Department of Natural Resources as a biologist, mainly focusing in the fisheries arena, but hobnobbing with all the guys that were over in wildlife. At that time, I thought I was going to be the offshore guy, you know, that's all, I, I'd fallen in love with the ocean at that point. <laughs> then later I went on to become a game warden for the Department of Natural Resources. Uh, about 2001, I think it was, I got out of that entire agency, went into private enterprise. And, you know, having been in that arena and still having my love of all things wildlife, I wound up, you know, staying in the same Geological area, you know, my, my stomping grounds are the Francis Marion, uh, the Andrew Pickens of the Sumter National Forest, and the Santee Delta Ace Basin, those areas. So, you know, I'm a huge wild turkey enthusiast, waterfowl enthusiast, white-tailed deer enthusiast, and I've been in the private industry of managing wild game and consulting on wild game properties for, gosh, 20, 20 to 25 years now. Wow. Um, and that's just kind of a side hobby for me, you know, and I do it for a, a very select few people that are typically military oriented. 
Um, they're retired and they're just wanting to do things that, you know, a lot of guys want to do once you find yourself out of that career. Okay. But, uh, and that led to the formation of the Carolina Wildlife Syndicate. I noticed this change in action management stances, objectives, and protocols that were just not what I had grown up under, what I had seen to be traditionally productive as to wild game fecundity and recruitment. And some of the stuff was just absolutely logical. And as I began noticing that, due to the many people that I knew uh, throughout the state, throughout the southeast, actually, because it wasn't just happening here, it was like a, a changing of guard, so to speak, uh, the atmosphere around wild game in our public agencies just began to, began to change for the worse. And I just kept getting pressured. I'm talking to everybody from congressmen to, you know, the concrete guy were calling me up going, hey, man, what, what do you think about this? What's going on here? What's going on there? And then one day, you know, I, I decided I had an idea, and I talked to a couple of buddies that had been thinking the same. I was like, man, we got to unify here. There's something going on, and we've got to stop it. Um, and those two guys kind of stayed active, but they knew that it was going to be a sensitive role because, you know, all of us have had friends that are in those agencies and they, they kind of got a little worried about hurting feelings, and I kind of I prayed about it a whole lot. And I said, you know what, feelings, they are important. I said, but the, the protection of our wild game and our hunting culture and hunting history, which I believe is also tied to the Second Amendment, are just going to be more important. So I just stepped out there, and in less than four years, I think we actually just had our fourth-year anniversary where it, you know, approaching 8,000 members. And we're, we now have our 501c3 status, and I'll be developing that more as time moves on. But, you know, our mission is to just get everybody back on track. Managing wild game is not rocket science. It is not difficult. It's no different than raising a healthy baby. You know, you need food, your shelter, and your nutrition, uh, and you need protection from your enemies. So um, that's where we're at. You know, that's what you, the Carolina Wildlife Syndicate is all about is basically unify, unifying the voice of the hunter to let these agencies know that we want to return to traditional and productive wild game management, whether it's turkeys, whether it's waterfowl, whitetail deer. We do a little bit of quail stuff. But the quail group out there, Tim Askins, Tim Long, Kenneth Schuler, Crockett Harness, those guys do phenomenal. So they don't need my help, though we do new work together. They're, they're a great dot org. That's uh, Quail Unlimited. Yeah. Um, I strongly support them. I'm on the board of QDMA, which is now NDA. National Deer uh, Association. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, so we tie into a couple of different groups, and we, you know, we, we endorse one another. And, you know, it's all just watching what's going on. And obviously, as far as I know, especially in the southeast, we do not have a single hunted species, white-tailed deer, Eastern wild turkey, bobwhite quail, or waterfowl, where the population is actually on the increase. They're all on the decrease at the moment and have been for a long-term trend since about 2000, 2001. Right. Yep. So that's why we're here, buddy. And, and you know, we got about a minute and a half left in this. Well, let's see. 9, 20, 10, 20, 11, 20. I got about two minutes, two and a half minutes. Habitat loss. Probably number one on the list of things that affect all of the above, the deer, turkeys, quail. And it's not, and David, something that I've, I've kind of stumbled into over the last few years with, with 
going around the state as much as I do and all, it's not, yes, it is housing developments, it's industry, it's whatever, but a lot of habitat loss is due to farming. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, I mean, you got to feed the people, man. Yep. So uh, habitat loss and everything is tied to humans, whether it's human needs, resource, or development. Um, that's the bottom line, which is why my group is specifically focused on increasing public lands, the public lands that we already have, and managing those to the maximum capacity or what's, you know, what would be called optimum sustained yield uh, as, as to wild game because, you know, as you look at the human population and its explosion and the uh, movement from the northeast and the northern states down into the southern areas for climate and COVID, other other related uh, things, we are, in my area, Charleston, it's just absolutely spreading like, you know, there's a lot of negative terms I'll put on it, but I'll just say it's spreading like wildfire. Here in, great. here in the upstate in Greenville, too, same thing. Yes, correct, correct, absolutely. Uh, and that's an intro, and that's Carolina Wildlife Center. We've got about a minute and a half left. Um, it, you know, turkeys is, we're in the middle of turkey season. A lot of what we're going to talk about is turkey. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about fire, uh, prescribed burning, and, and the benefits, and how to do it right, how to do it wrong. Uh, public lands, because one thing you told me earlier, uh, you know, well, I, I watched a little bit of, of Chamberlain's, uh, oh, what is it, Public Hunting Society? Is that the yeah, name? The hunting Public. Hunting Public, yeah, they're a little thing they did with him. He said, you know, we've got to manage, for, for now and forever, we're managing a decreasing habitat. Forever. And yeah, that was, unless, unless human population stops trending the way it is or gets knocked back in some format, we are not gaining habitat. The earth is a finite resource as to wild game habitat. So every square of that checkerboard that you remove is one square lost. And you talk about mitigation and litigation to reproduce that habitat somewhere else, but you're not gaining that habitat, and it's never as good as what the existing habitat was. So it's a net loss, period. Sobering thought, you know it. <laughs> never. Yeah. I, in all my years of hunting and all my years of, of looking at habitat and all that, that one, uh, that one kind of shook me a little bit. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, y'all hang on. We're on with David Strickland, uh, a friend of mine who's uh, got a, a long and uh, and good record in the outdoors. And we're going to talk about turkeys. We're going to talk about fire. And uh, have a good time. So y'all hang with us. More Woods and Water South on the other side of the break. Welcome back to Woods and Water, South Carolina. My co-host, Taylor, is uh, off today. Let's just put it that way. Now, it's, uh, it's a busy time for her. You know, it's, school's kind of winding up here in the next few weeks. She's busy with trying to study for exams and getting projects done and all. So I gave her the day off, and she'll be with me. I think it's next weekend we'll be out on Lake Murray for the Tackle Pro Warehouse Tour. 
So uh, she'll be back around. I hope you don't miss Taylor too much today, and I hope you continue to listen because we got a great show. Got David Strickland on. Um, going to talk a lot about this segment, a lot about fire. Fire is a good thing. You know, it, the California fires are bad things. That's because they don't manage them at all. They don't manage for them. All they know is is to be reactionary when they when they light up. But what we're going to talk about is prescribed burning, prescribed fires, where it's it's a it's done with a purpose, and it's done with a result in mind. And David, fire is fun. Well, it's uh, it can be a lot of fun. It can be extremely productive. So if we break down, you know, obviously fire, everybody knows what fire is. But the word prescribed in front of it means that there is a prescription that is needed. Now, 99% of the time, if we're, you know, relating that word, we're talking about the medical field. So we have an ailing person or a person with a condition, and the doctor offers up a known and proven through time-tested theory and research a prescription that is then written and or prescribed to benefit that person. So the same thing is in a tune with prescribed fire. So we take a block of land, and as the stewards of that land, whether you're the private landowner or the manager on that, be it the timber manager or the wild game manager or whatever else, Prescribed fire is one of the most effective tools and cheapest tools in the toolbox to basically fix what might be ailing that land. Now, when we talk about land ailments, we're really bending everything to the tune of what man wants, what man needs. So it might be that we... Uh, use prescribed fire to stop an understory because that understory is not only creating a fuel load for, you know, that might pose a risk to your valuable timber assets. Um, and that same low understory is also competing for the nutritional value of all of the elements in that soil that your crop, your timber crop might need. And so you want to remove that. And so you would apply prescribed fire to that in efforts to kill and keep that understory down. Um, Or you might want to, if you're in a wild game management position, you might have an area that has just become so dense, whether it be, you know, Smilax, Greenbrier, or you might be getting some non-desirable hardwoods mixed into that, and you want to open it up, um, you know, and basically recycle your nutrient uh, that are on the ground, put those back into the system. A really quick way to do that is with prescribed fire. So it's a, invaluable. I use it a lot. That's one of the things that a lot of people think that David Strickland is anti-prescribed fire. And nothing could be further from the truth, but because of the plight of prescribed fire, so back in the 40s, it, 40s, 50s, 60s even, prescribed fire was a big no-no. Because all everybody ever saw was, you know, wildfire effects. Sure. And wildfire effects are not good for the landscape in the eyes of mankind. So I'm always going to say Mother Nature knows best. So natural wildfire, short term, might not be good for the landscape. Um, but on a long-term rotation, if we remove man, which obviously is impossible, then it's good if man was not in the equation, you know, Mother Nature is fully capable of manage, managing herself to the best abilities of all things, as we can see or 
basically make us, uh, you know, a good guess is that just, you know, due to the wonderful early pre-colonial settlers that we have, whether it was DeSoto or Bartram or even the writings of Daniel Boone, uh, things were certainly much better then. So Mother Nature was doing all that, very little bit of aboriginal effect. But prescribed fire is an invaluable tool. I'm very much pro-prescribed fire. We get a lot of people saying we're not, but that's because they just don't really understand some of the issues that we see with the misuse of prescribed fire. And it's a tool. Let me let me add this. Yeah. Much like a skill saw, if we're talking tools, it's an invaluable tool. But when you make a wrong cut with that skill saw, if you didn't measure twice and cut once, if you just jumped in there haphazardly with your skill saw, you've done some major damage to your project. The same can be said with prescribed fire. If you don't use it the way it's supposed to be used, you can do some major long-term damage to the land of which you've used it upon, which is where what we see is happening more often than not as to public lands. Okay. Let's, let's, take, let's take it this in two parts then. Let's talk about prescribed fire for wildlife, prescribed fire for tim- timber. Let's do that. Talk about timing. When it comes to wildlife, when do you want to have those prescribed burnings? So, I mean... Even our own Department of Natural Resources, if you, if you dig back far enough, you're going to find in there, they have a little brochure um, that you can find the recommendations for prescribed firing or wild turkey management. We're just going to talk about specifically for wild turkeys right okay. now. Um, and, and it applies to quail as well. Um, the, you know, the, the ground the, nesters. Uh, yeah, galliforms, ground nesters. Right. Um, you know, up until really the 80s, Maybe it started really, and then it kind of took off in the 90s. All fire for wild game was notated as, hey, you need to do this in the dormant season, which means basically, you know, fall, winter, into very early spring, basically before the leaflets or buds begin to form on your desirable and non-desirable hardwoods. So that's what you would do for wild game management because obviously – You've got what we call spring emergence. These are animals that go into a torpor. Some are even completely dormant. And then as the temperature heats up and your plant value and nutritional values of these plants begins to increase once their sap starts flowing and their early growth begins that's highly nutritious, these animals all wake up. You know, that's everything from insect life to you know, the birthing of white-tailed deer. Everything is centered on getting that big kickoff for the year and the digestibility and the palatability and the nutritional value of the spring emergent plants. So when we have spring emergence, what we don't want to do for wild game is destroy that vegetation. If we're worried about browns for whitetail, we don't want to destroy what nests might be on the ground for galliforms. And I take it a step further, as you know, the, the big controversy now is, you know we, know, we know eastern wild turkeys are in the decline, so I personally am like, hey, every clutch counts. Sure. You know, um, every egg counts at this point. You never know what, we don't have a, a finger on what's the, what the issue is, but we don't, we don't know that the next species, that, that one nest that was killed, that one individual in that, that whole lineup, that species of eastern wild turkey might have been the one that might have been more resistant to avian pox or LBD, LPDV or something of that nature. So, I'm a firm believer that every clutch counts. 
Um, <clears throat> so, but also on top of that, we've got all the low, low nesting songbirds. You've got insects emerging and everything else, snakes, reptiles. I mean, our box turtles are just taking a beating on our southeastern national forest lands. I mean, they're almost non-existent now. Um, due to, you know, this, this growing season fire. So that's my plan. Now, I also have lands that the landowner wants to do a hybrid plan. A hybrid plan is when he wants to capitalize on his timber investment, typically live lollies. Okay. But he also is a hunter, and so he's got wild game on his mindset. And so in that case, if I have, as we talked about earlier, a timber stand, obviously we're, we're typically speaking pine, and typically we're talking loblolly. Um, and if I see uh, an area that needs to be growing season fire treated, then, you know, we'll assess that and we'll make that move. Now, for me, that means we can't just say, okay, anything after April 1st, which is typically your, your large agency, United States Forest Service, United States Fish and Wildlife Service, Department of Natural Resources, about April 1st to October the 1st, that's kind of what they condone. They've connotated as growing season and, therefore, growing season fire. But, obviously, with the weather patterns we've had lately, you've got to watch it. You've got to know your land formation. You've got to know, okay, well, everything's starting to leaf out right now. You want to let those leaves get on there for about seven to ten days, get a little size to them before you apply growing season fire. Because if that's what your goal is, is to control the understory, non-desirable and competitive understory that's, you know, competing for the nutrients in that soil against your crop, which is your loblolly crop, then you want to put some growing season fire to it. You can get the same effects if you are in tune with the landscape by doing a late season dormant season fire or treating repetitively with dormant season fire. Um, There are cases where I need to get a little more aggressive but being that I'm on a property, if I apply dormant season fire continuously like every other year, I will can achieve the same results as doing a growing season fire without the risks. Right. Now, a lot of people argue that, <laughs> and that's fine. They yeah. can argue all they want, but I'm telling you in the southeast, and right now, this year I treated about 2,100 acres of land with fire, and you know, I I'm very blessed that I've grown, grown to the point where I'm now subcontracting that out. I just watch over the results. I make the calls. Let's break. Let's break right quick, David. Hang on. Yeah, Be right back. Well, hello, Sophie. Sophie has come to say hello. She uh, has been outside. She's that black hide. Black hair is hot, isn't it, girl? Uh, welcome back. This is our final segment of the show today. Again, we're talking with David Strickland, uh, who's, if you're on Facebook and you want a good group to be involved in, if you're concerned about wildlife and habitat and all that, it's Carolina Wildlife Syndicate. And uh, David, I've enjoyed having you on the show today. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off last segment, but ran into that hard break. So go ahead and take just a minute or so and wrap up the fire part of it. I know you were saying that you could you could get some of the same results with, you know, Repetition yeah, so, is good. So, so if I have a landowner, he wants a hybrid plan. He wants to protect his timber. He wants to have a good, you know, uh, a, a growth, a good, good quality timber and wild game. Then what I typically do is just uh, I, I shorten down my my um, 
rotational effects of dormant season fire. There are very few times where I feel the need to push truly into the late growing season, which I'll call that the about, you know, when those, when those leaves are, you know, beginning to fully form, um, then I, I try not to ever put fire in there. Not only am I not risking my customer's timber, which is, if you'll notice, the large land, the uh, large timber companies, they no longer use prescribed fire at all whatsoever. Uh, because of that liability and that risk. But also, I'm not, you know, risking doing damage to my low-nesting songbirds, my spring-emergent herps, amphibians, the reptiles, of course, nor my galliforms, which are your turkey, your quail, your chuck wheels widow. Um, and I'm not destroying the browse that my whitetail are all going to be dependent upon as soon as they drop their fawns, you know, because th- that that early season growing leaflets and buds, that's primarily where the whitetail is going to be getting, you know, the majority of its nutrition, which, you know, a whitetail feeds mainly is about 95% off of browse. Right. And that's where that doe gets her milk production from. So, you know, and obviously back to the turkeys, now I'm sitting here going, man, I'm a turkey lover, and I'm an old <laughs> turkey lover. So the last thing I want to do is be the guy that is uh, fire-killing my turkey nests. Yeah, right. um, so in rare instances, now, if you've got a guy that's just strictly timber, then there, there is some true benefit to using, you know, two to three week into it, uh, into that growing season to, to use growing season fire. However, I'm that guy that I walk these fires constantly. It's what I do. I'm, I'm not degreed. I don't have a paper that says I'm a fire ecologist. Okay. But there's very few people that have spent as much time studying the ecology of fire as I have. And I will tell you that it is my opinion Growing season fire creates more non-desirable hardwood regen than just about anything else you can do. So anyway, that's, you know, I'm, I'm a pro prescribed fire guy, but you gotta follow the prescription. You gotta be careful with it. It's an excellent tool, but man, can it be a nasty one when misused. And, so yeah. Let's, and, and we'll save some of that fire for later. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, um, we did, we've done things for a long time sure. in traditional manners, and if you look at that, they produced. If you look back when we just used dormant season fire, well, we happened to have a whole lot, lot more wild game back there. We had healthier timber back then, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just the guy that's like, hey, if it's not broke, I don't want to fix it. Sure. So, all right. Turkeys. It's been yes, the sir. last, uh, got about, uh, I don't know, nine minutes or so. Turkeys, yep. turkeys, turkeys. It is turkey season. Uh Whew. I have yet to be in the woods, but I have been there mentally many times. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, turkeys across the southeast, no doubt we're in decline. Uh, you know, causes. What do you What do you think? So it was first noted with a SWIFA, um which is basically a collective group of biologists. Probably, you know, some guys started standing up about 2000, 2001. By 2007, I think they had made a consensus across the southeast that the southeastern turkey was on decline, and they formulated some, basically, symposiums around that, the, the, the decline of the southeastern wild turkey. And everybody started, started throwing stones at it, um, you know, trying to hit the nail on the head, and still that's not done. Um, Chamberlain has done some excellent research that has led to what a lot of guys that are what I would call turkey men have known for a very long time, and that's that when you, if you early kill a dominant gobbler, then it sets a reset not only amongst the pecking order of the 
gobblers, the toms, you know, now your beta male becomes alpha and then everything under him is going to refight and the beta's got to refight and reestablish that pecking order. So there's some time lost there. But then the hens have to go through their little selection process again. So, boom, you shoot that tom early. And especially if you start killing the alpha and the beta, uh, which happens, I think, quite often now due to technology, then now you've really, really messed up the natural system. And so you've put a big pause. And so there again, those turkeys, you know, Mother Nature knows best. They have been designed in our peak, you know, incubation, which is the end of nesting and the beginning of nesting hasn't been determined by determined by Charles and Mike um, is, you know, April 13th through the 16th latitude, depending in South Carolina, give or take a day or two. And that's basically what the everybody that I've ever talked to, you know, would, would agree with that, including myself. And you can, you know, and all the gobbling studies kind of indicate the same. So I think that that's one of our big things. And so the season setbacks were a result of that, which I was hugely for, still am hugely for. You know, I'm a guy that cares more about the turkey itself as a species than I do about killing one. Um, I would say I'm a pretty good turkey hunter. I've been at it for a very long time. Um, and the the worst part for me is actually pulling that trigger. I love the game. Um, so, and, and I, and I'll use every part of a turkey. I've got a daggum shoebox full of wing bone calls that I've made, but, uh, and I, I enjoy eating them, but when you know, there's just something programmed in me, probably from my father, that it says when a species is in decline, then we need to treat it with reverence. Sure. Um, you know, one of the biggest regrets in my life will always be not being able to see the Carolina parakeet. Uh, I, I look at pictures of that, the Audubon pictures of that, and I'm like, golly, can you imagine to have parakeets flying all over the Carolinas? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I just don't want to see that. We've almost lost a wild turkey once, and we don't know how close we came to losing him, but by George, it was really close. And so now we've got this evil darkness that's settling over the wild turkey that we can't figure <laughs> out. And, hey, yeah, we've got our top researchers using the top-of-the-line technology to try to figure it out, and we're no closer than we were 10 years ago to understanding. Right. Yeah. So let's throw some darts at what might it be. So we know that the whole, what, you know, Chamberlain's done enough research to realize that, that, that somewhere between 60 to 80% of nests are not successful. Thus where my little conversation right, yes. piece well, every every clutch counts, right. and every first clutch counts the most. There was a whole leaning section, fraction, and whatever you want to call it, group of people that would say to me, oh, well, they re-nest. And I'm like, man, no second attempt is ever as good as the first attempt. Finally, Chamberlain got some research out there that shows, man, it's just atrocious. I think it's like second nest attempts are like, they're a really low percentage, and their success of raising a poult to adulthood is is even lower. He also I found it's below very, like ten percent. It's below ten. Yeah, yeah, I think it was maybe eight. Yep. I've got an eight and a twelve. I was just trying to pull that up on my PC. <laughs> okay. really uh, so I'm not going to throw out any hard numbers because I don't have them in front of me. That's fine. Um, got about, but, uh, got about three minutes secondly, to go. he found that a whole lot of turkey hens, mature, capable hens, weren't mating at all. That's not good. Is that um, is that from a lack of gobblers or is that just? Well, hey, we don't we hey we don't know, right? Okay. So he didn't give us any definition on 
Why? Well, I, I would suspect, you know, because the male turkey's gonads are only going to stay functional for X amount of days, and the female is only going to stay fertile for X amount of days. And so if those two things don't cross, then, hey, you know, we're not having any successful nests whatsoever. So I would suspect that what's happening, you know, due to the loss of the dominant birds and the beta bird subordinate, that then that system reset, before they get reset, the physiological of either the tom or the hen is to such a point that no mating can continue. It's done. You know, it's a very narrow window. Um, They are not like the white-tailed deer where if that doe is not successfully bred, that she'll repeat her estrus every 28 days until, I mean, you know, we've seen fawns, and you see scrapes all the way into February. I mean, right. in certain species, areas have, have adapted, you know, to such that Texas peak ruts like January here in South Carolina it kicks off September and October. So turkeys aren't like that. Wow. So some of the things that float around in my mind, you know, the biggest one is weather because there's no doubt that what nests are active. That means to me the hen is sitting there. She is incubating. If we have these long-term, late April through May, heavy, you know, deluge, tropical right. depressions, temperature drops, and you've got, you know, two, three, four, five, six inches of rain in the course of two weeks, that's bad news. Uh, the southeast was plagued by that for about five years in a row. So, to me, the very first thing in the southeast is weather. The last two years, however, we've had pretty decent uh, weather trends. Hopefully, this third year will be the same. So uh, the, the second one in my mind's eye, and a lot of people are probably going to disagree with me, is, you know, I think too many male toms are being killed by the novice hunter. I think it's become a a fad um, due to, like, social media. The same, I see it with waterfowl right. a whole lot. Yep. And, like, there's just something missing in the human persona now and how they do something they – they want the end goal really quickly. So I'm just going to step out there and say I want to see research done on the male strutter decoys. And, you know, that's the weakness. Like the male turkey doesn't have very many weaknesses. I'll say he only has one, and that's that he's combative. He is territorial <laughs> and will end his life. I'm not going to call it chivalrous. Yeah. I'm going to tell you that I can take – I can take and, – and this is – I'm just going to be – I'm putting my own hand in the chipper right now. 20 seconds. I used to, I've seen the results of what decoys can do. Yeah. So, uh, third, I'm going to look at predation and disease almost in unison. I think they're one of, you know, they're probably taking out about the same number of, of turkeys. You know, we've got a massive amount of predators out there. Um, All right. Still there with me, David? Yep. All right. I appreciate it, man. We'll do this again. Hate to cut it off because there's a lot of info. But, folks, as always, make time to get out there. Take the back roads when you can. Don't forget that camera. See you back here next week. More Woods and Water, South Carolina. Get me from.